we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. We're your hosts. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. And we got a whole alphabet soup of nonsense for you today. Cool. D-O-M, 2-C-B, M-D-A, T-M-P, 2-C-I, 2-C-E. Two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers. We don't have any of those things. No, we don't. I wish we did. Well, you know who does? Who's that? American chemist Alexander Shulgin, or Sasha, to his friends. Ah, isn't that funny how Sasha is like the Russian version of Alex? Yeah. Why? Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't get it. Me neither. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we're talking about a lot of drugs. (laughs) Sweet. So many drugs. Like, literally all the goddamn drugs. Mm. Now, Willow, that list of chemicals that I just read, have you ever heard of any of them? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the two C's are around, two C. Yeah, yeah. Two C. What about D-O-M? No. What about two C-T-7? Maybe. I listen to a lot of those trip reports. <laughs> oh, fair enough. On yeah, YouTube, so. <laughs> TMP. <laughs> like, now we're at Ale- LF1. <laughs> That's one that I'm interested in. That it, sounds very. We'll, we'll be talking about that one. Yeah. Aleph? Aleph1, as in. As in the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sweet. That's the that's the one that Shulgin destroyed the recipe for, so no one could ever. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> and there's literally hundreds more, more? of those. Fuck, yeah. Cool. Most of these drugs are what's known in drug culture as research chemicals. Yes. Uh, because there's kind of sort of technically legal for research purposes. Research meaning taking them and seeing what happens. Yeah. Uh, and there's so goddamn many of them that they haven't been made illegal yet. And because there's so goddamn many of them, like every one is too niche of a market, right? Right. And also, you can just kind of change the recipe a little and make it again. Yeah. Might have some very different effects, as as we'll find out. Oh, boy. But likely, if you're at all a, let's say, intermediate level enthusiast, you've, you, you maybe partook in uh, some of Sasha Shulgin's work. See, Sasha Shulgin was an early psychedelic researcher who took it upon himself to invent, produce, and along with his wife and their friends, consume hundreds of psychedelic compounds that he cooked up himself at his lab called The Farm in California. The Farm. The Farm, Mm. yes. And he did all this legally with a special license from the DEA. And despite his working relationship with the DEA, Shulgin became a counterculture hero in the 90s. Interesting. Yes. And we'll see if that's deserved. I have opinions. DEA. Yeah, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Yeah. Yeah, he's good buddies with a lot of DEA guys. Now that's interesting. Yes. I I understand why, and we'll, and we'll get to that. Uh, in the 1990s, Sasha and Ann Shulgin, his wife Ann, wrote and produced two monstrous tomes, oh. like a thousand pages each, called Pical and Tical. Uh, which stands for phenethylamines I have known and loved and tryptamines I have known and loved. 
uh, respectively. The latter halves of each of these books are detailed recipes and trip reports at various dosages for, I'm not kidding when I say over 200 different psychedelic drugs. Holy shit. Yeah, I think it's like 230 something That's a lot of drugs. It's a lot of, a lot of drugs. Like I thought I've done a lot. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. This is a lot. And now some of them barely do anything. Some of them do nothing. Yeah. Most of them do a lot though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And How romantic. We'll get, we'll get to that. No. Oops. (laughs) Um, Oh boy. Yeah. And all these drugs are, all of which are very different. I mean, they thought it was romantic. A lot of people think it's very romantic. It is Uh very romantic. It's also fucking super annoying. Yeah. Uh, The subtitle for Peacall is- um, a chemical love story <laughs> and the first half is like dude's biography and then Anne writing about how they fell in love and it's it's super fucking annoying yeah yeah i didn't enjoy it at all oh uh. yeah we'll get there okay yeah and the latter half of the of these books with the recipes are available for free online oh yeah you can just go look up the recipes for all these on arrowwood for free it's just there Wow. Yeah. The um, internet is so great. Yeah. Uh, and the Shulgans say that they wanted to make the knowledge available to the public because the government was trying to suppress it or something. Well, if nothing else, Alexander Shulgan did truly believe in psychedelics. Um, and you might have heard a bit of a caveat in there. A little if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. There is. Uh, like many counterculture heroes, um, the man is not the myth, you know? They never are. They never are. And the Shulgans, both of them, to me, exhibit some glaring faults. And there's also definitely some conspiratorial meat on uh, oh. here, wacky bones. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love to see it. Oh, yeah. Well, you'll see it. Oh, it's some good, good conspiracy meat. <laughs> but all in all, Alexander Shulgan was, again, a very human human and a wholly singular figure in the development of psychedelic culture. And some might say the evolution of the human race. Ooh. Now, we're going to get into all that, but before we do, let's do what we do and pull a tarot card. Okay. The star. Cool. Yeah. I like that card. The trump of Aquarius. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can dig it. I can definitely dig it. That seems appropriate. Looks like it's just not a bunch of drugs right there. Yeah. All fucking wacky and flowy and cosmic. Shit. Yeah. Hell yeah.
that baseline is second to fucking none. Yeah. It's so fucking good. Yeah, that's pretty good. I love that fucking song. First things first. Uh-huh. Let's talk about drug categories. <coughs> Phenethylamines and tryptamines. Yeah. Tryptamines. Do you know what these are? I'm familiar. Yeah, okay. So for the audience, tryptamines, you probably know. LSD, psilocybin, as in the mushrooms, uh, DMT, ayahuasca, or 5-MeO-DMT. And any advanced enthusiast will know that there are certain qualitative similarities between those chemicals, uh-huh. you know? The phenethylamines you probably don't know are all the same category. And these were Shulgin's primary area of research and interest. Mescaline is a phenethylamine, the active uh-huh. chemical in the peyote cactus. Uh-huh. Yep. So it's not actually not a tryptamine. Mm-hmm. I, Even though a lot of people would probably put it in the same category in their mind yeah. that has LSD in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a totally different class of chemical. I didn't know that. So are all the amphetamine molecules, are also amphetamine or are also phenethylamines. Uh, I guess that makes sense. I mean, like Ritalin is methylphenidate. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, methamphetamine, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get to that. Uh, further, all the 2C molecules are also phenethylamines, 2CI, 2CB, 2CE, mm-hmm. you know, all those. But yeah, it's weird that mescaline is more closely related to Adderall and meth, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. That blows my fucking mind. Or it's mescaline's closer to ecstasy than it is to- LSD. Yeah. 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 It's wild. So I'll be honest, I only got to read through PCOL. I didn't get to TCOL. And I wish I hadn't wasted my time reading the fucking love story because I'm, I've been told that there's uh, some more interesting stuff around like <laughs> Shulgin's interest, passing interest in like the occult and shit. In no, PCOL. no, they had to spend 200 pages talking about we'll their get, blossoming love story. We'll get, it's so fucking, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but so most of the drugs we'll be talking about are in fact phenethylamines. And even uh, I think- in PCOL, there's the recipes for 176 phenethylamines. In TCOL, there's only like 55 tryptamines. Spent way more time with uh, phenethylamines than tryptamines, which is cool because that's the ones that not a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. But backing up a bit, where'd this dude come from? Alexander Shulgin was born June 17th, 1925 in Berkeley, California. His father was a Russian immigrant and his mom was from Illinois. Yeah. Yep. And as a kid, like Shulgin collected stamps. And he mentions this in PCOL seemingly as a justification for collecting things, yeah. which he did with drugs. A lot of people collect things as kids. Yeah. You know, he I'm sure- collecting things. Yeah, it's just about anyone. They probably had a collection of something as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried to get into collecting things. I tried to get into collecting stamps. Mm. I couldn't do it. It's probably the same way. I just do all my drugs. I did I pigs. Collect pigs? Yeah, I collected pigs. Like, <clears throat> like real pigs? No, like piggy <laughs> banks, stuffed pigs, oh, pig memorabilia. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Calendars with pigs on them. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. Big into pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Some kids like stamps, some like pigs. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the collecting thing never really left Shogun. Yep. He just collected drugs. There you go. He couldn't collect any more drugs. He just made them. Right. I'll make new drugs make out of the old drugs. drugs. Yeah. What happens if I mix this one <laughs> and this one? What happens if I, if I, if I take this one- on the come down of the other one, my liver will do this specific thing to the molecule and we'll get a brand new one that can only be synthesized in the human liver. Shit like that. Wow. Yeah. How did he not die? He didn't. Right? He fucking didn't. Yeah, well, I guess. Made it to 88. Yeah, I mean, he did die. But I mean, like, how did he not die of just putting random shit in his body? Um, 
Well, see, here's it turns out that psychedelics and all the fun drugs aren't really that fucking bad for you. Yeah. Especially true. if you know the dosage. Right. Yeah. It turns out it's actually uh it's actually the legal drugs that are the more ones that will probably kill you. Yeah, prescription drugs. Alcohol. Yeah. That one will right. kill you faster than anything else. It's not necessarily that like LSD or mushrooms would kill you chemically in your body, but they might make you do something stupid that would result in your death. Only if you're a moron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Shulgin definitely was not that. Um, so interested growing up primarily in poetry and music. Uh, he played viola. Sensitive boy. Yeah. Uh, Shulgin, Shulgin won a full scholarship to Harvard at 16 through like an essay competition. And at 16, went to Cambridge, Mass to study chemistry and psychology. Um, he writes, I found myself a student in a social system which was completely alien to me. Everything was measured on the basis of who your family was, where you'd taken your preparatory studies, and just how much money your family had. My family was unknown. I had gone to a public high school, and neither my parents as teachers nor I as the son of teachers had any wealth or any immediate prospect of acquiring it. Hence, I rated as a non-person. Furthermore, I was younger than most of the others, so I spent the year without developing personal relationships with anyone. I was a fish out of water, and I was miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The U.S. was already in World War II, and... Shogun joined the Navy training program, which promised a commendation if he could complete a bachelor's degree. But he hated Harvard so much that he just straight up went down to the docks and joined the Navy. Wow. Yeah. And while deployed, uh, Shogun got his first taste of the magical powers of the mind Uh through an injury he received. Nothing heroic at all. He cut his thumb and it got infected to all hell. Surgery was necessary but couldn't be performed at sea. So Shogun was getting regular morphine injections. He writes, This is what is meant by a central analgesia. The pain is not deadened, it is still there. The site of action is not the thumb, but rather the brain. The problem is simply no longer of concern. Morphine is a pretty remarkable drug. You might think that that's where the fascination with drugs came from, but you'd be wrong. See, when they finally docked in Liverpool and he went in for surgery, they gave him this glass of orange juice. Said, yeah, you look thirsty. Have this glass of orange juice. And as he was drinking it, he saw this unmistakable residue of a white solid in the glass. Oh. Yeah. A white solid. Yeah. I wasn't going to be hoodwinked by a bunch of soldiers. The juice was obviously a sophisticated cover-up for the administration of some dramatic sedative or pre-surgical anesthetic, which was expected to render me placid and unconcerned about the medical procedures they had planned for me. I resolved to prove my masculinity and control of the situation by simply denying the white crystals their power. I would drink the whole mixture down, but I would stay awake and alert. He didn't. He knocked the fuck out and didn't remember the pre-surgery anesthetic or anything. When he recovered, he learned that the supremely powerful white powder in his orange juice had been... What do you think? What do you think it was? Not what he thought it was. It was sugar. Yeah. Yeah. It was just some fucking orange juice that the nurse gave him because he looked thirsty. Right. And sugar definitely isn't known to put you to sleep. No. But he believed it was a drug. Yep. So it did what he believed it would do. Yeah. And it was this experience that got Ale- Alexander Shulgin on the path of psychopharmacology. Mm. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. Yeah, he writes. A drug by itself can be a powder, a spoonful of sugar without any curative value whatsoever. And there is a personal reality of the recipient of the drug that plays a major role in the definition of the eventual interaction. 
Each of us has his own reality, and each of us will construct his own unique drug-person relationship. The shock of the orange juice sugar caper led me to try to explore any and all tools that I might use to define that relationship. And when the tools that are needed are not in fact known, they must be discovered or creative. They might be moments of orgasm or fugue states or daydreams that take you momentarily to a rewarding fantasy and escape from responsibility. All of these are treasures of the spirit or psyche that allow exploration along paths which are undefined and completely individual. I decided right then and with total conviction that drugs probably represented the most predictable and reliable tools for such studies, so I would become a pharmacologist. And here's how he uh, describes his work in an interview from 1996. As a scientist in a laboratory with modern means, but doesn't all this searching for the alternative goes back many, many, many centuries? Well, you have to realize what I'm searching for, which is not for altering consciousness or for having fun or for enjoying this or for discovering that. I'm looking for tools that can be used for studying the mind. And other people then will use the tools in finding out the aspects of the mental process and how it ties to the brain. But my main drive is in as a, a tool maker, making of tools and letting other people exploit them. What, but that means you have a fascination with, with how the mind, how the brain works. Complete, completely fascinated, but not the brain, the mind. The brain is now, the, we're in the decade of the brain. Everyone looking at neurotransmitters here and serotonin and dopamine and all these sort of things, which is a marvelous search. And indeed, they're uncovering many peculiarities of neurological connections, but many are being found in animals. And in fact, the animal is the main uh, location for search, for research. And I'm interested in things that affect the mental process, the function of the mind which is not necessarily to be found in an animal. So the questions I am addressing are how does one affect the attitude towards something, the self-image of something, the feeling of, 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 of religious ecstasy or of fear and paranoia, something you can't see in a rat. So, interesting feller. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, like, I'm down so far, right? Like, I'm, so I'm, far, super, so I'm super down. Yeah. So after the war, Shogun went to UC Berkeley, where he was a self-described so-so chemist, and where he wrote a, quote, dull and uninspired thesis and got his PhD. And uh, here our fucking clown asses are writing a thousand pages a year just to get you, dear listener, give us five bucks. (laughs) 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 At the time, Shogun says that while there were incredible religious and cultural descriptions of the Native American peyote religion, and there was Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. There was absolutely no interest paid to mescaline in the field of chemistry. And this bothered Shulgin since it could be so easily synthesized, but no one seemed to care. Mm. Like, it was already in the cultural zeitgeist mescaline was and had been, but chemists specifically just did not care about synthesizing mescaline. Eventually, Shulgin got to try mescaline himself, uh, 350 milligrams of mescaline sulfate. And here's Shulgin speaking about it from the same interview. Oh, boy. Can can you... When you go back to when you were young, what, what was there something that made you go for the mind? Yes, uh, it was an, an extraordinary experience with mescaline. Oh, gosh, about 40, maybe 40 years ago, I was given in an experimental setting of 350 milligrams of mescaline sulfate. And I knew intellectually what it was and what it did, but I did not know personally what it 
was and what it did. There were about 10 of us together, and about half of us were experimental subjects, and half of the people were babysitters. And I went in it with an, rather an open view of what was going to happen, and I was totally dumbfounded by what occurred. I suddenly found myself into an extraordinary world, physical world around me, visual, sensory world of color, of interpretation, of motion, of form, of shape. And I, my first response was to say, how did this drug do this? How did 350 milligrams of a white solid produce this effect? And then I realized the drug had almost nothing to do with it. That drug allowed me to realize, express, to, to appreciate what was there all along. And I was totally blind to it. So what it did, it catalyzed the opening of my own viewing, and that caught my fancy. And from that point on, I've, I've been in research in this world ever since. That's very interesting. Yeah. So around this time, late 40s, Shulgin also married his first wife, Helen, with whom he would have one son, uh, who he's referred to in P-Call as Theo. That's not his real name. Not sure what his real name is. Mm. Uh, he also went to work for the Dow Chemical Company. And while at the Dow Chemical Company, Shulgin invented a biodegradable insecticide that before then, there were Insecticides were not biodegradable, which is... So just poison everywhere. Yeah, that doesn't go away. Shulgin made a a poison that does go away. And it so impressed his bosses that he was then given free reign to do whatever the hell he wanted. (laughs) So he says. So he started making drugs, psychedelics, specifically variations on mescaline. And the problem he quickly encountered was that... There is no animal model that has ever been developed or, as far as I can predict, will ever be developed for the characterization and evaluation of a psychedelic drug. Thus, all discovery must use the human animal, and I was, by default, that animal. Yeah. Well, I guess no one one else is going to do it. I guess it's got to be me. I guess I'll be the lab rat. Yeah. Of course, the bosses wouldn't like that, so he had to set up a bullshit, uh, basically bullshit testing setup to answer the question, how much does it take to do a thing? Which, as Shulgin says, is infinitely easier to answer than what does it do. Yeah. So he and his partner, Bert, got a bunch of fish tanks, a bunch of fish, and a gram of pure LSD from Sandoz Labs in Switzerland. Uh, And if you don't know, a threshold dose of LSD is about 25 micrograms, 25 millionths of a gram, meaning that he got a fuck ton of LSD. Yeah. 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 They dosed the fish's water. Nothing happened. Fish don't trip, apparently. Not that we know of. Yeah. Well, they were they were looking at the the studies that were done with spiders. Yeah. Very uh, different levels of LSD make spiders do fucked up things to their webs. So they were, they didn't they weren't actually really looking for results. This was literally just like a to show the bosses. Yeah. That they were doing. Just because you brought up the spider thing, have you ever heard of the thing where like wasps can mind control spiders into taking care of their babies? Yeah. 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 And then like it makes the spider infected with like this wasp parasite that makes them want to take care of the wasp offspring and then it makes their webs get all fucked up looking. Yeah. I have heard of that. Yeah. About that. That's creepy as that's creepy as hell. Right. Yeah. Ugh. Well, at this lab there's like just one pretty funny anecdote that I thought Excellent. it amused me. Um Shilgan also got from uh, Sandoz uh, a gram of pure psilocybin, the active chemical in magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Psilocybin, unlike LSD, is measured in milligrams. Uh, and there are 1,000 micrograms in a milligram. Okay. So they're in the aquarium, and Sasha asks uh, Bert, his assistant, to get him the vial of psilocybin. 
The assistant, Bert, runs off and comes back with a vial and gives it to Shulgin. And Bert says, oh, here you go. And uh, in case you're wondering, it's bitter. Uh. And uh, Shulgin says, how do you know that, Bert? And Bert replies, oh, I, I spilled a tiny bit on my hand and licked it off. And Shulgin says, holding the vial, Bert, are you sure you grabbed the right vial? He didn't. Oh, fuck. He grabbed the vial of LSD and licked a giant dose off his hand. Oh, no. And Burr had a great day. Oh, good. He had a fantastic day. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> he had like the best day of his life. Uh, that's literally, yeah, he had a fucking great time. The point is, often one will hear that LSD is odorless, colorless, and tasteless. It turns out it's actually bitter. Huh. Yeah. More you know. And this time, too, he he doesn't give much time to, in, in the book, he doesn't give much time to his days at Dow Chemical. He pretty much restricts it to like one sentence. Yeah. Same with what he refers to as... Blackwood Arsenal. Okay. Which is not Blackwood Arsenal. That's a fake name. Just like Dow Chemical in the book is referred to as Dole Chemical. Yeah. Well, Blackwood Edgewood. He worked at Edgewood. Yeah. yeah. He he worked at Edgewood. Oh, fuck. He worked at fucking Edgewood yeah. for a while. Just like doesn't talk about it. Uh, I wouldn't either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'd just bury that deep in my mind. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just like one of those things. I mean, and throughout this, like my... My perception of Alexander Shulgin is that just like that dude loved chemistry and like that just because you love a certain science doesn't make you a moral par- paragon. Right. In any sense. You well, it seemed I mean? like he loved the idea. He keeps stressing the idea of it wasn't the drug so much as it was my state of mind. Yeah. Like being primed to take the drug and anticipating results. Like I know that. Have you ever experienced a day where you know you're going to take drugs later that day? Yeah. And for some reason, up until the point where you take drugs, you kind of feel like you're on that drug, almost like your brain is preparing itself to be yeah. on that drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I definitely get what he's saying. I do. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I, I also think that, I mean, you read all his trip reports, it's like drugs, he definitely knows drugs do things. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. But they do things because they impact your nervous system, which then impacts yeah. your perception it's of reality. It's to unlock things that are already inside. Yeah, it's yeah. happening inside of you, in, in the mind. But but yeah, point is, Homeboy worked at Edgewood. Yeah. Which is where the army did the first LSD experiments before it, it was the pre-MKUltra, MKUltra. Right. Yeah. And a lot of other experiments. Too. A lot of other experiments. Like Agent Orange and shit. All sorts of fucked up things. Yeah. The LSD was only just like one small part of it. It was also... What was that one drug that would make you trip for like a week? I was well, it was probably one of the Daytura extracts oh, or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, or it might have been one of the ones that fucking Shulgin cooked up. Yeah, it was like some crazy fucking drug with I don't, I don't remember the name. Yeah. Oh, also, in the late 1950s, a friend of Shulgin's invited him to play viola at a club for wealthy and elite gentlemen in San Francisco. In Peacall, this is referred to as the Owl Club. The real name is the Bohemian Club. Yeah, the the Moloch people aren't going to like that. Yeah, they're the ones responsible for Bohemian Grove. Yeah. Shogun just straight up became a member of the Bohemian Club. He writes, The club proved to be a group of gentlemen from a broad array of political and professional backgrounds, leaning somewhat towards the political right and the well-to-do. Hmm. I wonder if he felt like he did at Harvard in this situation. I don't think um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he felt more like part of the club now. The regular members carried the major share of the operating expenses, but for the actual participants in the stage and concert shows, playwrights and composers, those who contributed time and effort, 
Those who contributed time and effort to club activities such as the orchestra, a couple of bands, and a chorus, the costs were largely subsidized by the club itself. I found the camaraderie to be extraordinary. The modest time investment was completely rewarding, and I developed a number of close friends. Yeah, and despite a short leave of absence, uh, Shulgin returned to the Owl Club and was a member and was a member of as of the publication of Peacock in the early 1990s. Um, and he makes many mentions of having a great time at Bohemian Grove. Yeah, not referred to by name, but yeah, dude, just straight up at Bohemian Grove, and like. I don't, it's not some fucking Illuminati shit, right? Like, it's right. not the Illuminati. What it is, is a bunch of wealthy and well-to-do gentlemen on the political right yeah. that meet together and strike deals that they can't get away with doing in public. Right. Um, and it was actually like- And they have a grand old time too, and they drink milkshakes, and they do little song and dance routines. Oh, they have, they're fucking each other in the woods, is having a great time. They're peeing all over the peeing place. Peeing all over each other, the woods, the trees, the owls, the children, all of them. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> kind of interesting, right? Very interesting. Yeah. So starting in the 1960s, Shulgin began testing drugs with a trusted group of friends and developed the Shulgin Rating Scale. And, and you'll see this on all sorts of like psychedelic forums and stuff when people want to pretend to be smart fucks when they're doing drugs. <laughs> You've got uh, plus slash minus, plus slash minus, the level of effectiveness of a drug that indicates a threshold action. If a higher dosage produces a greater response, then the plus minus was valid. If a higher dosage produces nothing, then this was a false positive. Plus one. The drug is, is quite certainly active. The chronology can be determined with some accuracy, but the nature of the drug's effects are not yet apparent. Plus two, both the chronology and the nature of the action of the drug are unmistakably apparent. What does that mean? I'm having trouble understanding what, what that mean? means. What do you mean? The chronology and nature of the action. How of long the drug? it takes to happen, what it does. Oh, okay. Yeah. So meaning how much information can be yielded about the drug. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So plus two, both the chronology and the nature of the action of the drug are unmistakably apparent, but you still have some choice as to whether you will accept the adventure or rather just continue with your ordinary day's plans. Smoking weed. Yeah. You know, you can get real high and go on a plus two. The effects can be allowed a predominant role, or they may be repressed and made secondary to other chosen activities. Right. Like like when you're on shrooms, but then like you need to go into the gas station and do something and all of a sudden it's like you're not high at all. And then you walk back out and you're back on shrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, plus three is not only are the chronology and the nature of a drug's actions quite clear, but ignoring its action is no longer an option. Yeah. Is- <laughs> that gas station's fucked up now. Uh, you cannot put I've, in your PIN number. I've been what in some it? weird gas stations before, man. Oh, yeah. The subject is totally engaged in the experience, for better or worse. Do I live in this gas station now? <laughs> is this my home now? <laughs> <laughs> plus four, a rare and precious transcendental state, which has been called a peak experience, a religious experience, divine transformation a state of samadhi, and many other names in other cultures. It is not connected to the plus one, plus two, and plus three of the measuring of a drug's intensity. It is a state of bliss, a a participation mystique, a connectedness with both the interior and exterior universes, which has come about after the ingestion of a psychedelic drug, but which is not necessarily repeatable with a subsequent ingestion of the same drug. If a drug or technique or process were ever to be discovered, which would consistently produce a plus four experience in all human beings, it is conceivable that it would signal the ultimate evolution and perhaps the end of the human experiment. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a thing to say. Yeah. Fucking A. God, that reminds me of this one trip report of a guy who invented what he called gasid, which is where he would take acid and then time it to take nitrous oxide while on like the peak of acid. Oh, that'll do a thing. 
Yeah. That'll fucking do something. And oh, he, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he built a little spaceship room, like a little spaceship terminal in his house, and he would go into his little spaceship console and then do Gassid. And, like, he got fucking obsessed with it. Yeah. Until he almost died and then realized, like, okay, I have to stop. Oh, no, that, that combination right there will... Uh, I did a whip it on acid once. Is that what the... the yeah. It's not nitrous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But this dude is probably doing a lot more than just a. Oh, he was probably doing one. multiple canisters in a row. Yeah. He probably had a fucking big tank and. Yeah. I hope he wasn't just. Maybe he had like a mask and everything. He wasn't just God, like fucking coughing no. on a balloon. It was fucking up his marriage and everything. Like. Uh, yeah. It's a very interesting. Yeah. For it. And nitrous but, is quite possibly the worst thing to develop yeah. a habit with. According to him, that, that would be the plus four. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I 100%. That will reliably produce a plus four right. experience, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, pro- he said, like, every time. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I've gotten there on DMT, but not the next time I took DMT or the time after that. It's, like, like it's, it says. Not Nitrous is an time. intense fucking thing on its own. Yeah. Anyway, in the 60s, one of the drugs Shulgin produced was called TMA. And basically, it was like if mescaline made you angry. Oh, no. <laughs> he said it was no bueno, but the chemical structure intrigued him, so he kept poking at it. Uh, he writes, I had a number of projects that I wished to pursue in France. I wanted to learn to speak the language. I wanted to break my father loose from his grief over the death of my mother. And especially, I wanted to put a methylene dioxy group in place of two of the methoxy groups in TMA. The three methoxy groups of mescaline and of TMA have oxygen atoms that are sticking out from the benzene ring all isolated like islands. They are not interconnected. If two adjacent ones were to get a bridge between them, be tied together, then a very subtle change in the geometry of the molecule would result. The name of the bridged analog would be MMDA. Yeah, I wish I knew more about chemistry because the way he this dude thinks about like the molecule structure and shit and how he can just like tell that it'll do something based on yeah. that is really fascinating to me like I have a book on molecules and atoms and like the tiny structures of our world. Yeah, yeah. Look into it. Yeah. I should crack it open. Yeah. And MMDA that's um 3-methoxy 4-5-methylene dioxyamphetamine. Oh wow. Okay. We're getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He did it by basically combining nutmeg oil with TMA, oh. the, angry, the angry masculine, and got something, quote, without the bells and whistles, the drama of masculine, but apparently very benign and friendly. He gave it to an artist friend who gave a lengthy trip report. Here's a brief excerpt. It all began to loom in timelessness and beauty. I thought that I was going to enter the Olympian universe. I was not prepared for the Olympian universe. <laughs> I had been expecting something like a marijuana high. I realized that if I entered the Olympian, that I hadn't yet recovered sufficiently from the last high to hold myself together. Heat swelled in my genitals and rose to my stomach. I felt agonizing and perfect fear. I wanted to ask the others to go back so I could take Thorazine. I couldn't talk. The car swerved around a hairpin bend in the road, giving me another view of the silver-brown grass fur and the, and the vast unwanted dearness of the view. Point is, you ever heard of MMDA? No. Me neither. That's one of like 230. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't think I want to go to the Olympia. Yeah, no. 1966, Shogun left Dow Chemical and was recruited by a shady as fuck aerospace lab, which I think was just NASA. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was just NASA. I mean, probably. He just names it, he just names it like aerospace. He doesn't give it a yeah. name. Headed by, the lab was headed by one Captain Pinkerton. Uh, great code names. Yeah. Shogun was recruited by a guy who described himself as a finder for some undisclosed government operation. And Shilgin was told when he was recruited, 
There will be situations in the future in which astronauts might well be exposed to long periods of sensory isolation, and all the potential mental developments that might come along with that particular territory. There is being set up a research program geared to develop chemicals, which could be used to train those astronauts, which might be subjected to long bouts of sensory deprivation. Teach them to roll with the altered states of consciousness that could very well be a consequence of that isolation. Pinkerton fella sounds odd. Yeah, yeah. we're going to put them in little capsules and send them up into space for a long time. We just got to make them like be cool with all the weird shit that happens when you're up in space isolated. Yeah. And uh, Shilgan writes about just like the odd interactions that he had with this Captain Pinkerton. I might find myself having to deal with the nature and structure of scientific imagination and how it could be channeled. Or Pinkerton might bring up the subject of mental telepathy and the possibility of successfully influencing another person's thought processes or behavior from a distance. Once it was an exploration of the kind of mental role-playing one might have to do in order to understand somebody else's perspective and motives, as symbolized by the old saying, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Or another old saying, which was new to me, takes a Turk to know a Turk. Shulgin didn't end up... Sorry, Turkish people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for real though. Like what? <laughs> I had a Greek friend growing up that would always, we had a, a magnet school nearby us that had a lot of Turkish exchange students. Whenever we would pass by them on the street, she'd like roll down the window and be like, Pleh. Really? I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's what I, I mean, it's what I do when I see Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shulgin didn't end up finding out just what this Pinkerton guy was up to, he says, because- he says when he was asked to get a security clearance, he declined it because he said his research would forever be siloed away and sealed from the public and he'd be under this weight. Mm. So he says that he refused the security clearance. Yeah. That's what he says. That is what he says. That's <laughs> what he says. He later heard rumors from others that worked there that the money to develop psychedelic drugs was actually coming from the Department of Defense and CIA. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's not, also not surprising either. Yeah. Yeah. One psychedelic Shogun made uh, during the 60s was called DOM, D-O-M. It was a very long-lasting trip. Through the year 1964, DOM was being evaluated by several of my allies in the dosage range of 2 to 4 milligrams. I was still dedicated to marginal threshold dosage evaluations, unwilling to, <laughs> unwilling to dip into the spring deeply. I admire to this day the brave souls who worked with me to explore the nature of this material. My friend Terry evaluated 2.3 milligrams and reported an extraordinary mood elevation, with no indication of any nausea whatsoever. In the third hour, he found a pronounced enhancement of odors and of emotional interactions with a richness of empathy. At the eighth hour, there was an unmistakable decline and a three-fourths grain of secanol. Secanol. And a three-fourths grain of secanol was needed for sleep at the 10th hour. Yeah, so in 1967, Dom began showing up on the streets of San Francisco under the name STP, Serenity Tranquility Peace. It caused uh, quite a stir because it sent many a hippie to the hospital with intense seizures and at least one death. Shit, they must have been taking more than 2.3 milligrams. Yeah, whatever street chemist had cooked it up was... Uh, Given out doses of 20 milligrams. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. Once he realized his mistake, the dosages changed to 10 milligrams, which was- That's still a lot. Still enough to overdose. Shulgin thinks this may have happened after a lecture he gave about the mechanics of how, of how Dom was made, but he says he doesn't know, and that regardless, once he made his discoveries, the knowledge was just out there. 
Yeah. In his notes in the 90s, Shulkin found a handwritten note of completely unknown origin that says... He wrote it himself while on the drive. I'm sure. <laughs> if on this page I shall have expressed it to you, then it is true that Dom has the glory and the doom sealed up in it. All that's needed to unseal it is to surround it with a warm living human for a few hours. For that human, for those hours, all the dark things are made clear. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Just imagine Alexander Shulgin just like, and then just locking away that that handwritten note somewhere in like a, a fucking robe in his fucking Bohemian Grove robe with a like a, a candelabra, yeah. writing about the glory and the doom seal. <laughs> it's such a fucking. That's, it's the, all contained in this chemical. It just needs a human to take it. That's the most edge lord ass drug note I've ever yeah ever read. Ah. It makes it sound really badass, though. I'd take a couple milligrams, fuck it. Yeah. Let's go. Well, 1967, while babysitting, or in his words, acting as daddy in residence <laughs> to his friend Noel's graduate students at UC Berkeley, uh, a graduate student, student told Shulgin of a very interesting chemical she had played with. One of these was a dear, dear sprite, appropriately named Mary Kleinman, who told me that she had done an experiment with two very close friends of hers, and that they had used 100 milligrams of N-methylated MDA. She shared very little about the experience, but implied that it was quite emotional, and that there had been basically a good reaction from all three of them. Now, Shulgin had, had heard of N-methylated MDA. In fact, he had synthesized it at Dow Chemical a few years earlier. But he didn't know anyone who had tried it, and it was actually first synthesized by Merck? The German pharmaceutical in 1912. Okay. But no use was seen for it. Um, give it to the Nazis. Well, <laughs> well, Shulgin synthesized it again, and he found it quite remarkable. Four, you see. N-methylated MDA is also known as 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, a.k.a. MDMA, a.k.a. ecstasy. Yes. Fucking MDMA, baby. MDMA would end up being Shulgin's claim to counterculture fame. He's the godfather of ecstasy. Yeah. He's the dude responsible for bringing it from the fucking yellowed pages of some 1912 Merck cookbook. Yeah. Uh, to, I'll just imagine I played that sting again, you know, to the, <laughs> <laughs> essentially creating modern creating like a fuck ton of modern culture. Yeah. Like I didn't write this. But I'm going to go on a bit of a rant right now. Cause I don't think MDMA gets the fucking credit. Credit it deserves yeah. at all. I mean like, okay, look, I'm perfectly honest. If there's a bag of MDMA here right now, I'd eat it. I don't give totally. a shit. Everyone has, everyone has their poison. Yeah. Some people like Budweiser. It's some like people like Jack Daniels. Some people like the really strong fucking weed that makes me think about life and death and all the uncomfortable things. I like ecstasy. 
That's my fucking yeah. poison. <laughs> 3 p.m. on a Monday, but Fuck heck, it. if it was here, I don't give on. a shit. It's your day off. <laughs> it's not. Uh, we're doing. A, we have a lot of shit to do. Yeah. It'd be a weird bonus episode. <laughs> yeah, but we have fun doing it. It wouldn't. It would just be a very uninteresting bonus episode. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> if we were both on ecstasy. Yeah, it'd be super on it. It'd be terrible radio. Oh, I think it would. It would be very entertaining radio for like five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, MDMA is a huge part of modern music, mm-hmm. music festivals, music culture, and psychotherapy as well. And it does not get the credit for that. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that in a in a second. Yeah. MDMA would end up being his claim to counterculture fame. However, he hated the fame it got him. Yeah. As much as he loved MDMA and he found it to be, I mean, it's the star of the show. Right. It's the star of the show because of what it does. But also, he didn't invent it, right? Yeah. He literally didn't invent it. He just had the cookbook. Yeah. He made a new method for synthesizing it. That is the method that's used today. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, too, um, Shulgin was kind of a fucking elitist. Yeah. He absolutely knew why psychedelics were groovy and why MDMA was a world-saving chemical. But Shulgin didn't like that people were just manufacturing it and eating it willy-nilly. See, yeah, that's certainly due to the impurities and contaminants in street drugs for sure. But like also, this dude was friends with DEA agents. He was a member of the Dan Bohemian Club, for Christ's sakes. Like, I read the book. The man's arrogant and elitist. Right. Like he, that, so yeah. he didn't want just like lay people having access to it? I don't... So... No, because... I'm gonna make. It seemed like he wanted people to have access. He wanted smart people to have access. Yeah. He didn't give a fuck really about what happened to dumb people. Okay. That's kind of the impression. The impression I get is that for all for all Shulgin's talk about exploring consciousness and, mm-hmm. and all this shit, I I the impression I get, and this is a hot take with not a lot of evidence, but it's just my read, <laughs> right? My yeah. read on it is that I mean I. Well, elitist is the right word. I think he believed that there was a class of intelligentsia who could, who had the necessary faculties to truly understand, you know, right. progressing human race. And I think that he thought the dumb people were just fucking dumb uh-huh. and undeserving, yeah. the unwashed masses, sort of. Right? Maybe not that harsh, but I just, I yeah, because he's he's a dude, right? Like we all have our flaws, <laughs> right? Yeah, we all have our flaws, and it's fine. But it's interesting, and I'm only really harping on this because of how much of a hero and like freedom fighter. He's uh-huh. sort of seen as, and I just don't, I don't see it. People are going to fucking hate me for that. <laughs> I, I mean, like, he's, he's a chemist that experimented around with drugs. Yeah, that's who he is. Yeah. And his work is monumental in its achievement. Right. Like, I uh, I have an insane amount of respect for Alexander Shulgin. Mm-hmm. It's fucking nuts what he did. Yeah. But let's fucking tone it down a bit. But right. people do that. They do that to all their fucking heroes. It's every fair. every goddamn hero of drug culture is the greatest hero who's ever lived. And it's like, nah, he did a cool thing. Just let it be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, in one experiment with uh, MDMA, Shulgin gave it to a friend of his, and he relates what happened when it kicked in. We walked up the hill to an area I had leased out to the condominium builders on the neighboring land for the storage of lumber. There were several no smoking signs around as fire warnings. Do you think I smoke too much? Do you think you smoke too much? I don't think so. Then the answer is probably not. It was now an hour into the experiment and still no acknowledgement of any activity from the MDMA. Then came the unexpected question, the -the off-the-wall question. Is it all right to be alive? You bet your sweet ass it's all right to be alive. It's a grace to be alive. That was it. 
She plunged into the MDMA state and started running down the hill, calling out that it was all right to be alive. All the greens became living greens. All the sticks and stones became vital sticks and stones. I caught up with her and her face was radiant. She told me some of her personal history, which I knew well, but with which she had never come to peace. She had come into the world by an unexpected cesarean section, and her mother had died during the delivery, and for fifty years she had lived in the guilt of having had her life given at the cost of her mother's life. Yeah, Shulgin didn't hear from her for months. Then he called her, and she related to him that her depression that she had struggled with for like her whole life was gone. Sweet. She was able to let go of it. MDMA is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And Shulgin was directly responsible for getting MDMA into the hands of a bunch of researchers and psychologists. I I, I put that story in there. I put that story in there because because of what I was saying earlier about MDMA just not getting the credit it deserves. Mm -hmm. Like that's an example of what that thing does. Yeah. Um, And one of the things that MDMA has been studied extensively for is treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh Uh-huh. It works like nothing else. You know, and I know you know this, Willa. Mm-hmm. Um, it works like absolutely nothing else. And qualitatively, like, listen, it's a bad rap. The name ecstasy sucks. If you take MDMA, you're probably not going to find pure MDMA anymore, which breaks my heart. What you want to do is you get three of your fucking closest friends. You light a campfire in the woods. Take some fucking Molly. You just talk for a while. See what happens. Like, that's that's all you got to do. Like, that's that'll that'll fix you up for years. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking to friends is always good. And it's, and what, well, it allows you, what it does is it cleans the windows. And that's always a, been an analogy I've used. I, what I think it does is it opens up people to the ability to give themselves permission to feel things that are usually uncomfortable. Yes. And, and to share those things. And it makes you love yourself. Yeah. And like see yourself for who you are through the right. eyes of others mm-hmm. and see how fucking cool you are. Yeah. It, there's, a, there's a magic there that can really get people out of depression that they can find no way out of and it's really goddamn unfortunate that it's thought of as like fucking i don't even know what people think oh it makes you lose all your inhibitions and just fuck everything it's like no that's not what that thing is yeah it's just not i don't know it's i, I just hate the fucking rap it gets uh, it sticks in my craw but Shogun was directly responsible for getting mdma into the hands of a bunch of researchers and psychologists uh there was an elderly psychologist referred to it by Shogun as adam <laughs> um, it was Dr. Leo Zeff, if you've ever heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Leo Zeff had like been secretly using psychoactive drugs on with his patients for years. I almost said on his patients, but it actually wasn't. Like he would always take them first and know what they did and shit. And Shulgin introduced Zeff to MDMA in 1977. And I believe it was at Zeff's funeral that a mutual friend when. Shulgin asked, like, how many people do you think he ended up giving MDMA to? The friend estimated that Leo Zeff had used MDMA to treat upwards to 4,000 patients uh, in a few years. That's quite a lot of people, especially- Did like, they know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was all, that was all fucking- Okay. Um, yeah, totally consensual. Zeff already, Zeff had taken the drugs himself. He knew what they did. He mm-hmm. you know, talked to him about it beforehand. But yeah, um, Shulgin wrote about MDMA uh, afterwards- it has proven to be such a valuable psychotherapeutic adjunct. I truly believe it will persevere in therapeutic use for a long time to come, despite the structuring of the law that has come about in many countries to prohibit its use and discourage its study. As one psychiatrist put it, MDMA is penicillin for the soul, and you don't give up penicillin once you've seen what it can do. Yeah, MDMA is penicillin for the soul. Yeah. Fucking, and that, that was also one of the reasons why his 
why he was pissed about being the godfather of ecstasy and pissed about the whole drug culture that had come about. And I can understand that from that perspective, from the perspective of an elitist smart fuck, um, you're seeing it being used to treat thousands of patients and like save lives mm-hmm. and like legitimately save lives. And then it gets banned because from your perspective, fucking idiot kids are just taking ecstasy. Yeah. What's weird is that like when ecstasy, when ecstasy first hit the scene, like there was like daytime talk shows where like they were talking about, you could, there was places you could buy it legally in stores for wow. a little while. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden uh, the Reagan administration fucking like, it was like an executive order, an emergency scheduling because mm-hmm. just too many people were doing it. Oh, but it, I've heard that people can die or get, get overheated. You drown yourself. It's, well, here's the thing. British government did a study on the relative dangers of different drugs. Believe in, it was in the 21st century at some point. I forget if it was which decade, but yeah, it was after 2000. They rank the relative harm of of different drugs. Uh, up at the top, cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Right below that, alcohol. Yeah. Um, below that, cocaine, heroin. And then every prescription drug you can think of. On the safest side, the three safest in order for safest to third safest are psilocybin mushrooms, safest, LSD, MDMA. Mm-hmm. Fucking British National Institute of Health says MDMA is the third safest drug that they have. Well, there studied, you go. Including legal ones. So, you know, Jesus Christ, get it off. Get all these psychedelics off schedule one. What the fuck yeah. are we doing? Yeah. So Shulgin cooked up all this, all these weird drugs and crazy bullshit uh, at his lab called The Farm in California. It was a, it was a compound. He had a compound. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason he was able to do all this was because after his stint at Dow and after his Stint at the weird lab with Captain Pinkerton. Uh, Shulgin went through his friend Bob Sager, uh, a DEA agent, and he got a special license to produce psychedelics, which is just what he did at the compound. I think he had chickens too. Yeah. But yeah, he so he did all this again in full with full blessings of the DEA. Um, essentially, he was allowed to make, invent, and consume drugs. Drugs that, according to Shulgin, should be researched and studied and utilized to further expand the limits of human consciousness. And yet, Shulgin was also giving lectures to the DEA on psychedelic drugs. Mm-hmm. Teaching the DEA how to understand them, what they are, what they do, while the DEA is ruining the lives of people who believed in and engaged in the very same things that Alexander Shulgin was. Yeah. And I get it. It'd probably be better for the DEA to know what they're dealing with, but it still doesn't sit right with me. In 1988, Shulgin wrote the reference book for DEA on psychoactive drugs. He wrote their book for them. It wasn't until after the publication of PCOL and TCOL that the DEA fucked with him. And they did. They raided the fuck out of his lab, hit him with a bullshit like storing something illegally charged for a bunch of grand, but he couldn't do his shit anymore. But Shulgin says they wrote these books because he feared that the DEA, under a new regime in the 1990s, was going to crack down on him and he wanted to make sure that his research was published and couldn't ever be suppressed. And good on him for that. But Mm. I can't help but wonder, considering he worked directly with the DEA under Reagan and the era of Just Say No, which was in large part a response specifically to MDMA, if Shulkin should be considered a hero of the groovy outlaw class, if the DEA hadn't signaled that they weren't happy with the farm, would Shulkin have published PCOL and TCOL at all? It's a valid question even if it's only as a reminder that humans are all humans and shouldn't be canonized too easily. And at the same time, here's Shulgin answering two questions from that same interview we uh, heard earlier. I, and what I'm saying is I can't place this dude. I really have a hard time placing him. 
yeah. other than he believed in himself and he fucking loved making and taking drugs. Right. Maybe that's the extent of it. Yeah. Maybe he thought that like, oh yeah, well, like the, the the knowledge of these things is more important than whether people are having fun with them right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but then there's always revolutionaries like you, alchemists, who go seek nature, seek seek science, seek a way first to to help themselves to 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 do the internal alchemical work, but then it goes out in the world, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. True, but I don't believe, other than the satisfaction of getting this information into the public, that I'm a power seeker. Because I find that that is a trap, I've seen it in other people, a trap that allows people to actually begin compromising their own principles very cleanly and very neatly for the sake of accruing power, wealth. It's the same same thing. Uh, I think that the, the satisfaction is what lives beyond you. And indeed, that's why we have children, that's why we have families, that's why we establish relationships, and that's why some people paint art, some people write poetry, and some people make chemicals. Mm-hmm. It's a way of leaving something that is lasting and may be of value. Otherwise, with your death, you're, you're, you're a, a flame that's gone out, nothing else. Like, he clearly, clearly wanted, he clearly wasn't trying to suppress consciousness and suppress drugs. No, it seems like to me he was very interested in spreading that knowledge. But was also willing to let the people who were just trying to make money or have fun with it, like, go to jail if it meant that he could do the work. Right? Yeah. But I guess that is the scientist archetype, right? Sorry, there's always the evil scientist. I'm not, not that Shogun was evil, but it's that, the amorality of science, mm-hmm. you know, or the star in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think he perfectly fits the star. Yeah. That um, like, that giving back to the world aspect. Or the the long view type thing. Yeah. Well, that's for later. We have more fun drug stories to tell. It's true. So Shulgin had like all psychedelic warriors, uh, his own lingo. He used the term piggybacking to describe taking a drug as another was on the come down. In one case, he took something called MDOH and piggybacked it with MDA, aka SAS, sassafras, methylene dioxide, amphetamine, the brown molly figuring that because of the chemical structure, his liver would do something weird with the combination and make a brand new drug. He wasn't wrong, but the resultant combination gave him terrible jitters and anxiety, so he did something he never did, smoked weed, which resulted in one of the most insane accounts of time dilation I've ever heard. My note, written at 8.31 p.m., stated that there was considerable subjective time passage out of proportion to the clock's activity, but that music on the radio had no pitch distortion at all. The next entry was made a couple weeks later at 8.35 p.m., and I had just felt another wave of slowing hit me. I had just felt another wave of slowing hit me. And just as the second hand finally made it all the way around the clock face to 8.36 p.m., there was yet another wave. I was getting scared. Yeah, he writes in a very lyrical way. It's hard to, like, like that's not a sentence I thought was, that's not what I thought the sentence was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so he tries to distract himself by playing piano. Well, first, like, Time has slowed the fuck down, but the music on the radio is at the same pitch where like when you slow music down, it gets slower. Yeah. It changes the pitch. So he tries to distract himself by playing piano and notices that the sound is still correct despite the time dilation. My fingers were somewhat sloppy, but the pitch was absolutely correct. I thought if a second takes so long to pass, why doesn't the pitch at so many vibrations per second seem to be way down there? Baso. Could it be that the sound receptors in my ear are also somehow slowed down so that everything is right back up there in sync again? That makes no sense. 
He calls his friend George to like ask him for help. He ends up on the phone with George's wife, Ruth, to keep himself grounded while George is on the way. And Shulgin has to put the phone down and go to his office to get something and like completely forgets that Ruth is on the phone. The phone was off the hook and Ruth was at the other end waiting. I had completely forgotten her and hoped that she had waited for me. I made it back and she was still there. Sorry to be so long, I got distracted. How long do you think you were away? 20, 30 minutes? You were gone one minute, uh, or a few seconds more than a minute. So the factor was about 20 to 1 between the clocks. So every minute he's experiencing is 20 minutes. Yeah, so it's just like taking an hour or so, but he is thinks he's in his house for fucking weeks. Yeah. What's really interesting about the story is that none of these drugs do this alone. Like, sure, yeah, weed can dilate time, but not like that. Yeah. And the MDA-MDOH combo didn't do it until the weed was added. The resultant experience was a very, very strange gestalt generated by Shulgin's own body and mind. Right? Like, that's very that's wild. And then there's Aleph-1. This is the intellectual psychedelic. No seductive sidelines to capture your interest. I want an hour to expand upon each minute. How to record concepts. One can't even record music without a time dimension. But concepts are in no time. Timeless, thus lasting, but untellable, only actable. Therefore, concepts are acts, acts of power. This drug too shall pass. I want to scream about it to the world, but that would destroy it. This drug is power. I will talk about its effects, but I must not reveal its identity. I will have to explore through the open doorway alone. <laughs> Jesus. Dude. Y- yeah. Here's some of the result. Here's some of the resultant power Shulgin found. Concept equals intensity equals power. Tell no one about this drug so that it can never be identified and there it mo- and there can no moves be made to destroy it. Concept censored. I apparently censored this concept because it was so personal and private. I simply refused to give anyone the right to it, including myself. <laughs> Everything I turn to moves, not in the physical or visual sense, but in the conceptual and constructive sense. One can create a concept from anything. A speck of dust, an insect. Try eyes closed. Looks like cottage cheese. Nothing there. <laughs> read in the next couple concept there are hints of this in all other psychedelic drugs but always lost in some sensory dimension concept this is what huxley was trying to pick out of lsd and mescaline this is each of those lsd and mescaline devoid of the entertainment pure conceptualization it is frightening concept try lab work why i would merely prove i can do what i already know i can do to what audience Concept. Other drugs have the virtue of providing their own escape hatches, the sensory diversion. Therefore, this one is especially dangerous. Concept. The thing to do is to focus one's diversions into a single sense, like the Western world being glued to its TV or radio. McLuhan had it right. Lying down is too much. I am out of control. It is better to be ambulatory so that escape can be made with visual input. Yeah, I relate to that. (laughs) He's so... It's a hell of a drug description. (laughs) Try lab work. Why? I would merely prove I can do what I already know I can do. <laughs> Isn't that the exact opposite of science? Yeah. <laughs> and I love how this dude's like... To what audience? He's like, even even in the book, he's like, this shit is so fucking crazy. Here's like, ignore the nonsense in this trip report. This is like one fucking eighth of yeah. the full trip report. He's like, just ignore it. But you'll see when you read my trip, you'll see why this shit is so powerful. I'm reading this shit. I'm like... Uh-huh. This dude's lost his fucking mind. <laughs> it's just, he's, he's, he's on, this is a man on drugs. So many concepts. Looks so, like cottage cheese. That's literally just what I would expect 
the writing of a dude on drugs to sound like that. Yeah. You know? He synthesized a few more Alephs, but abandoned it in favor of the 2C chemicals. Interestingly, 2CB was stated to be uh, he and his second wife Anne's favorite drugs. Apparently, it was very sensual and erotic. Uh, yeah. About Anne and the subtitle of Peacall, A Chemical Love Story. So a huge portion of Peacall is literally just a fucking super, super annoying love story. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it's super annoying. I'll give the brief rundown, then we're talking about drugs again. Shulgin's first wife, who's named Helen in the book, it's not her real name, died of a brain tumor, I believe, in the late 70s. In Peacall, Shulgin talks about how he wasn't really in love with her, and she only joined him on his psychedelic voyages once. What's more, he was also having an affair with a good friend's wife, oh. referred to as Ursula in the book. The portion of Peacall dealing with his, this love story is written by Anne. She meets him at a smart fuck dinner party and falls madly in love with him. But he's in love with Ursula. And Ursula keeps telling him she's going to leave her husband in Germany and come be with him. But Anne's in love with, with Alexander. And so he basically they, he basically starts dating Anne, but like being very open about how he's in love with Ursula. And Anne is like, oh, but I love him, so I'll just endure. Sounds healthy. Right. Surprise, Ursula never makes good on her word, and Anne and Sasha get married. It all seems very unhealthy and super annoying. Yeah. 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 It's about the gist of it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but she'll do drugs with him, so. Oh, she loved doing drugs with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they realized they were both in love, and it's, there's, it's, it's quite detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Anne also was a member of Mensa and the daughter of a U.S. consul in Trieste. Again, these people are the intelligentsia. They're just eating drugs and acting like teenagers at age 50. Maybe it has to do with my own jaded ass, but I could not care less. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Anne and Alexander did eat a fuck ton of drugs together. And uh, round this out, I've just got a couple of example drugs from Picol and Ticol. Cool. Yeah. And for each, I've pulled an excerpt from... For each, I've pulled an excerpt from the comments section and an excerpt from the experience report section. But there's also... And what's truly fucking insane is the recipe sections. Like, they're these detailed and complete recipes. Um as much as I have some problems with these folks, these books are fucking monumental achievements. Yeah. And uh, even without considering any cultural implications and shit. And like, I'm not going to bore you guys with the recipe excerpts from each drug because as wild as it is that exists, it doesn't make for good radio. And I don't understand chemistry at all. So I don't get anything out of it. But the fact <laughs> that they're there is the wild part, right? So Picol has 179 different drugs in it and Tcol has 55. I bet not a goddamn one of you could even name 50 psychoactive drugs. First, just to illustrate, we're going to go with what the recipe for MDMA looks like in this book. Synthesis. From MDA, a solution of 6.55 grams of 3,4-methylenedioxyamphetamine, MDA, as the free base, and 2.8 milliliters formic acid and 150-milliliter benzene was held at reflux under a Dean Stark trap until no further H2O was generated. About 20 hours was sufficient, and 1.4 milliliters H2O was collected. Removal of the solvent gave an 8.8 gram of an amber oil, which was dissolved in 100-milliliter CH2Ci2, washed first with dilute HCl, then with dilute NaOH, and finally once again with dilute acid. The solvent was removed under vacuum, giving 7.7 grams of an amber oil that on standing formed crystals of N-formyl-3,4-methylene-dioxyamphetamine. It's literally how you make the drugs. Yeah. Right? Like, these are detailed. These are fucking lab reports. Yes. Yeah. Free. Online. Just go go do it. Don't go do it. I'm not, enti- I'm not encouraging anybody... Say go make MDMA. No, we wouldn't. I was being, I was being sarcastic. We would never do that. This is a comedy podcast. <laughs> never said a serious thing in my life. Don't do drugs. Yeah. So about that, 
I didn't even finish reading the quote that I pulled. Yeah. I got about halfway through and. Oh, you get it. Right. The whole quote that I pulled is about one eighth of the total synthesis method. <laughs> right. Uh, and it should be noted that the synthesis method is what MDMA labs have used since the book was published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we know all about MDMA. Yeah. What are some drugs we don't know about? How about 2CT2? 2CT2. That's my favorite robot from Star Wars. Hell yeah. 2CT2? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With 20 milligrams, there is a neutralness to this. I am at the maximum, and I am asking myself, am I enjoying this? The answer is no, I am experiencing it. Enjoyment seems besides the point. It is rather intensely matter-of-fact, plus three. Is it interesting? Yes, but mostly an expectation of further developments. It is an... Is it inspiring? No. Is it negative? No. Am I glad I took it? Yes. Not glad. Satisfied and contented. This is a controlled plus three. No threat. The body is all right. Not superbly healthy, but okay. Of no interest either way. If I were to define the body state, I would have to define it in image. The image is of a not comfortable state of being clenched. Clenched? Well, carefully bound in control. It's also worth noting that these different trip reports don't necessarily come from Shulgin. They could be from him. One could be, the 20 milligrams could be from him. Or his 22 wife. could be from his wife or his yeah. buddies, his bunch of friends doing the shit. So yeah, uh, we can trade off on these. Cool. If you, want. you want to do the 22? With 22 milligrams, a slow onset. It took an hour for a plus one and almost another two hours to get to a plus three. Very vivid images, eyes closed, but no blurring of lines between reality and fantasy. Some yellow gray patterns a la psilocybin. Acute diarrhea about at about the fourth hour, but no other obvious physical problems. Erotic lovely. <laughs> Good material for unknown possible unknown number of possible uses. Can explore for a long time. Better try 20 milligrams next time. With 25 milligrams, I was at a plus three in an hour. It is most difficult to do even ordinary things. I took notes, but now I can't find them. This is much too high for anything creative such as looking at pictures or trying to read. Talking is okay. And to my surprise, I was able to get to sleep and a good sleep at the seven-hour point. Extensions and commentary. There's considerable parallel between 2CT2 and 2CT7, and both have proven to be excellent tools for introspection. The differences are largely physical. With 2CT2, there's more of a tendency to have physical disturbances, such as nausea and diarrhea. And the experience is distinctly shorter. With 2CT7, physical disturbances are less common but you're into the effects for almost twice as long. Both have been frequently used in therapy as follow-ups to MDMA. All three Tweedios of 2CT2 have been made and looked through, looked at through human eyes. Excuse me, all three what? Tweedios. Okay. I don't know what that means. Tweedio! I think it might be a nickname. I don't know. Maybe it's a an analog. Elon Musk's new cereal. Yeah. Fucking, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eat Tweedios. The 2-ETO homolog of the 2-CT2 is 2-ethoxy-4-ethyl-ethylthio, 5-methoxyphenethylamine, or 2-CT2-2-ETO. Oh my god. <laughs> Benzaldehyde has a melting point of 73 to 75 Celsius. The nitrostyrene intermediate is a melting point of 122 to 123 Celsius. There's something about the final hydrochloride. Basically, it's more science shit. Yeah. But again, it says the effects were felt very quickly. Vision was blurred. Yeah. Or intense eyes closed visuals. And the generation of a pleasant contemplative mood, contemplative mood, 
Baseline was reestablished in five or six hours, but sleep was restless with weird dreams. Nasal administration showed considerable variation between individuals, but a typical dose was 10 milligrams. And that's maybe half the extensions and commentary. Yeah. At, again, 179 mm-hmm. in this one book. Damn. Crazy. And that's, yeah. I picked the parts that were easiest for the layperson to understand. Mm-hmm. The ones that I barely could keep up right. with. Right. 2CT7 is another one. And this one has also killed a bunch of people because people were snorting it thinking it was molly uh, yeah. yeah and it does very different things nasally, yeah. and it's very variable one time i was really really stupid and i would never ever do this again in my entire life um you know you're out on the town you're in the city you're partying you're like who's in the bathroom that i can do drugs with what stranger here has cocaine i want some so you just you, you find a stranger that has a bag of white powder and they offer you a bump and you take it. And oh my God, that wasn't cocaine. That wasn't what I thought it was. Now I'm I'm hearing voices coming out of the vents all night. Yeah. <laughs> you have to show it special. Yeah. <laughs> never. Never. Yeah, see, I don't, have to, a- I don't have to worry about that problem. No. As a six foot three bearded man, no strangers are giving me their drugs. Yeah. 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 Maybe bully him into it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Next. Next. How about 2CI? Fun story. Buddy of mine went to a smartfuck college. He was about two or three years older than me. I was a senior in high school, and he got his ass a bunch of 2CI for research. That was a weird summer. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. Oh, boy. (laughs) With 15 milligrams. Comfortable onset. Most notable are the visuals. Patterning like 2CB. Persian carpet type. Very colorful and active. Much more balanced emotional character, but still no feeling of insight, revelation, or progress towards the true meaning of the universe. But at five and a half hours, drop off, very abrupt, then gentle decline. I would like to investigate museum levels. Don't know what a museum level is. With 16 milligrams, there is, a, there is an immediate alert within minutes. As usual, it was only an awareness, then nothing happened for a while. In retrospect, I see some type of activity or awareness within 40 minutes, which then builds up over time. The peak was at two hours and seemed to maintain itself for a while. Near the peak, there was some hallucinogenic activity, though not a lot. The pictures in the dining room had color and pattern and, and pattern movement that was fairly detailed. Focusing on other areas, such as walls or the outside of the house, produced little activity, though I tried. There was certainly a lot of color enhancement. There was also that peculiar aspect of the visual field having darkened or shadowed areas. These darker areas seemed to shift around to some degree. That aspect seems to be similar to 2CB. I don't think it was more than... I don't think I was more than plus 2.5 at the peak. Coming down was uneventful. I was down within six hours. I had no problems driving home, nor were there any difficulties with sleep. There were no body problems with this material, and I ate like a horse. Nice. With 16 milligrams. The 16 was a bit much, I realized, because my body was not sure of what to do with all the energy. Next time I'll try 14 or 15. However, my conversations were extremely clear and insightful. The degree of honesty was incredible. I was not afraid to say anything to anyone. Felt really good about myself. Very centered, in fact. A bit tired at day's end. Early bedtime. Yeah, I've, I've heard emotionally numb used for 2CI. Someone who isn't me said that. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because that's not what's <laughs> reported in these. Yeah, well, as Shulgin says, ve- things are very variable. Yeah, people. totally. Um, got really different brains. Yeah, like someone's, this, this feller's center, centered might be my numb. Right. You know? And the extensions and commentary. The frequent comparisons between 2CI and 2CB stem, without a doubt, from a bit of chemical suggestion. The two compounds have structures that are truly analogous in technical terms. 
In one, there is a strategically located iodine atom, and the other, an identically placed bromine atom. These are directly above and below one another on, in the periodic table. And what is particularly maddening to the synthetic diddler <laughs> is, is that they cannot be lengthened or shortened or squished around in any way. You can't make a longer or a narrower version of a bromine atom, as you can with, say, a, a butyl group. You've got what you've got, like it or not, no subtle variations. All right, how about a difficult drug now? Oh. 5-MeO-PYRT. Okay. <laughs> this is a tryptamine. So this is like the 5-MeO is like 5-MeO-DMT, but it's mm -hmm. not DMT, it's PYRT. Mm -hmm. um, so with three milligrams and smoking it. Yeah. I inhaled the vaporized sample at 10 past noon. There was quite a rush. There were none of the shifting shapes, colors, and forms of DMT, nor was it acute with clarity or energy, as with my many experiences with 5-MeO-DMT. The effect was intense, but not terrifying, with a full-body buzz, and with humming resonance as I fell backwards into something where all memory was lost. I was told that at 18 past noon, I was unconscious. Something over an hour later, I started flailing, rolling about, quivering and shaking, and had very constricted pupils. In another hour, I was able to talk lucidly, but quietly. In yet another hour, I was nauseous and tried for the bathroom, but didn't make it. The people who were watching me were alarmed. My actions were scary, and my skin looked funny for several days afterwards. There were long-lasting properties of this. My first exposure was with perhaps a milligram smoked. Also, the effects were substantial, with rough edges and minor dysphoria. Fun. Doesn't sound that fun. With four milligrams smoking. This was the free base. I remember the pipe and the inhalation, and with the pouring of a small glass of scotch, I settled down in front of the TV to watch a rerun of Star Trek. That was it. I came to sometime later in the, in the front room of a professional ally of mine, who had by chance discovered me walking down the street near his house. I do not recall, nor have I been able to regain any memories of the time I was out there. I apparently experienced no physical discomfort from the drug. In fact, I distinctly remember feeling very comfortable when I awoke. Clearly, this compound is some weird-ass shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Extensions and commentary. Again, as with other compounds in these writings, there is an irresistible urge to present generalizations. But with this particular material, there are obvious, unresolved problems with both dosage or duration. As such, I am limited to the few comments provided above. Dosage? A very few milligrams parentarily, but with smoking such small amounts, it is hard to accurately estimate the actual dosages received. Duration? One subject could be fine the next morning, and another could still be aware of wrongness a week later. I'm uncomfortable with any compound that seems to be widely variable in its impact on different people. There's another message of warning. Here one must accept the eloquent argument that, for the structuring of an experiment with an unknown and thus undefined new drug, there must be observers present who are both sober and sympathetic. The heroic and macho, I'll do it my way, can lead to both psychological problems and physical risks. As with scuba diving, always work with a partner. Mm. Now, now there's at least one substance that we know of that was left out of PCOL. Mm-hmm. That's LF1. Yeah. That's the one that made Shulgin go fucking crazy and think he was master of the universe. All right. It's also known as DOT. And he didn't put it in there because he felt it would be dangerous to both the public and to the chemical to put something out there with so much power. With so much So power. much power. But you can get it. Huh. It's a, it's a research chemical. You can buy it. Okay. Um, and many people on drug forums have tried it and it doesn't seem all that special. Like, really, at all. I'm super confused by it. <laughs> Could be very well that Shulgin's experience was just his experience. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of those subjective drug experiences. Too much of a smart guy to think that 
he he made up with all that power and how important those concepts are. Right. Yeah. So in 1994, two years after the publication of PCAL, uh, the DEA raided his lab. The agency requested that Shulgin turn over his license for violating the license's terms, and he was fined $25,000 for possession of anonymous samples sent to him for quality testing. And in the 15 years preceding the publication of PCAL, two announced and scheduled reviews failed to find any irregularities. Um, Richard Meyer, spokesman for the DEA's San Francisco Field Division, has stated that, quote, it is our opinion that those books are pretty much cookbooks on how to make illegal drugs. Mm. Agents tell me that in clandestine labs that they have raided, they have found copies of those books. Um, yeah, bud. Yeah. That's literally what they are. It's what they're stated to be. It's true. This isn't some fucking weird postmodern fiction, except for the first half a bit. Yeah. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, they're, they're fucking cookbooks, dude. Yeah. After the publication of these books, there's a lot of footage of like Shulgin giving talks at like Burning Man and shit and like lectures and stuff and mm-hmm. became, this is what became, pushed him and Anne into the hippie ass spotlight. And there's a movie, um, a documentary on Shulgin on YouTube. I think it's called Dirty Pictures. Uh, and it's it's interesting. It's funny like seeing him talk chemistry with these like fucking hippie hippies. Yeah. You know. But in 2010, at the age of 84, Alexander Shulgin had a stroke from which he largely recovered, but soon developed rapidly progressing dementia that would color the last four years of his life. He died at his home uh, in the company of Anne on June 2nd, 2014, at the age of 88, which is 14 years older than the average life expectancy of American males. Good for him. Point is, man didn't really drink, and he definitely wasn't huffing glue with Puhar. (laughs) Yeah. The real weird shit really isn't that bad for you. And- yeah, he lasted a long time. Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. He did. So that's that's what I got. And there was other, you know, there's some long ass books, man. There's a lot of there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit. I I'd recommend checking them out. They're very interesting. Um they're on online for free. So. Yeah, the first halves aren't. Like you got to buy those. Mhm. I still like to read T-Call cuz I I feel like there's probably just some interesting tidbits in there that I pull out and Get my conspiracy theorist brain running. So in the context of the star, what do you think about Alexander Shogun? I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. I... I mean, you know, she's pouring the water. She's taking the water out of the pool and then pouring it back into the earth and then it's flowing right back into the pool. Like, he's taking the knowledge of what he knows. Yeah. And putting it out there. Yeah. And the, uh, the star, as we've talked about before... Um, on the show with the star, like it's the, it's, it's cold. It's like the, uh, I, I'm thinking about. See, I don't agree with that interpretation. Ah, it's cold. Yeah, maybe. I think, I think so. Cause I feel like the star is a very warm and uplifting card that like comes after the tower. You know, it's like very supportive. I see it as a, a place to like rest. To me, the star represents the understanding that there is inherent that, that there is meaning in the universe, which is comforting. There's a comfort there, but it's, it's not warm. It's the Trump of Aquarius, for mm-hmm. example. And uh, Aquarius is humanitarian, but not necessarily empathetic. Uh, it's not. It's concerned with humanitarianism and utilitarianism, but not necessarily empathy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I guess I have a different personal interpretation of the card. Yeah, fair enough. And it's, it is one of the cards that is uh, on a different place on a different place in the Tree of Life in the Thoth deck than in um, yeah in the Rider Waite Smith right which d- does matter for what what the meaning is like, mm-hmm. that's like the one that Crowley changed 
and if you look on the Thoth deck, like, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's the cold blues and it's the, <clears throat> yeah, you know, and it, it's the trump of, of Aquarius. Because, like, I'm thinking about the whole playing ball with the DEA, writing right. a book for them and, like, doing something for the- Well, it is very, perhaps, like- supportive in a and that can take on that cold humanitarian yeah. sort of way. Yeah, utilitarianism, yeah. like the the benefit of the many versus mm-hmm. the the one, you know. Fuck the kids who just want to party. Yeah. The government says they gotta go to jail, that's what they're doing. We're interested in developing the human race. Right? Which I don't agree with that perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't like cops. But <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I, I think and and honestly like that's Probably what the people at Bohemian Grove think they're doing too. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're wrong and they're the devil, but you know. Right. That they think that they're working for the betterment of the human race and and the human species. Right. Right. And I I feel like that's probably why Shulgin got along with them. And that's probably why they got along with his drugs. It's not about the drugs. It's about societal structures and evolving as humans and blah, blah, blah. Human potential bullshit. All that stuff. You know, that fun. That whole fun game. Now, I want you to do a little bit of wild speculating before we, we sign off. Okay. Um, I'm capable of that. Just like, you got all these weird-ass psychedelic drugs. Uh-huh. You got the maker of it a stone's throw away from CIA and all that shit. Uh-huh. How, how much do you think Shulgin's weird drugs were involved in some of like the MK Ultra sub projects or like other other shit like just drugs that we don't necessarily think of that aren't the LSD that always gets trotted out well like just riff 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 on that idea for a second I mean yeah duh okay <laughs> <laughs> you know they're getting bored over there they're doing anything yeah kind of stick shit to the wall throw it whatever sticks like maybe if we give them this thing it'll do something yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's interesting to me. That, like, I, I did, like, run a, a search for, you know, Alexander Shulgin conspiracy theories and shit. And it's mostly just about how he was part of the Bohemian Club, obviously, yeah. right? But there's, I don't know, it's just one of those funny things, like, the LSDs always trotted out in that context and shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's a lot of others. There's a, there's a lot of other drugs out there that, like, you, you wouldn't be able to name, you know, that do all sorts of wacky shit. Well, this also really helps it adds more credibility to our idea of like their psyop in the music festivals Cause oh like, certainly because you can trace mdma straight to the cia yeah i mean yeah yeah and i have i have been told about um a, a psychedelic that was showing up at music festivals not not so very long ago that's probably where they're doing um, that was making people angry yeah you know they're probably like I mean, God knows if it's on purpose or whatever, but, you know, you test out a batch of your new whatever at the festival, see yeah. how it affects the people. Right. It's a controlled environment. Yeah. It's a fucking control. And like, listen, that might sound like I'm paranoid, like I'm about to start wearing a tinfoil hat. <laughs> I'll still go. I, but you won't do drugs from strangers. Never do drugs from strangers. Never. It's a bad idea. It's really bad. It's idea. a bad idea. You're going to hear voices coming out of the radio, the... <laughs> the air vents. Or worse. Or worse. Who knows? Or worse, you'll be walking down the street and not even remember it. Wake yeah. up in your friend's house. And hopefully it's your friend's house. Hopefully. I like that was a professional ally too. Yeah. <laughs> Two <laughs> lawyers or something. But yeah, that's fucking Sasha Shulgin. That was really interesting. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, listener, if you found that really interesting, give us a rating. Give us a review. Find us on all the things and you can find us on Patreon where you get access to our bonus series, Corkboard Bazaar. 
and our new Discord server. You can join a community of yeah, it's fun, fun over there. Maniacs, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and you get all that for five dollars a month. patreoncom bizarre. Find me on social media, Sequoia Kennedy. You won't be able to spell it. Look at look at my profile. Yeah, find Willow yeah, Truman, and then find him through me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Take care, guys. Take care, everybody. Next week. See ya. Peace. Bye bye.